Mark chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 30 and read to the end of the chapter. And Jesus said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I suppose it would be possible, even quite likely, that with a reading of the fourth chapter of the gospel according to Mark, that we would come to the conclusion that the central theme of the kingdom of God might be how people respond to it. If you think about the parables that we have considered thus far, the parable of the sower or soils or seed, and then the four parables that we considered last week together, there is a, a lot in those parables about how people respond to Christ and to the message of the gospel. But the central theme of the kingdom of God is not actually people's response to it. Even though all of those previous parables, five of them, back to back to back to back to back, is there, that's not the central theme. Even the miraculous expanse that we see evidenced in the parable of the mustard seed or the advance of the kingdom that it promises and guarantees, that's not the central theme of the kingdom. The kingdom's growth and development that the mustard seed parable portrays is not the central theme of the kingdom. The central theme of the kingdom of God is the king himself, Christ And we see that wonderfully as Mark brings this chapter to a close, which is bringing a day in the life of our Lord to a close. If you notice in verse 35, on that day, at the end of a long day of teaching, you can go all the way back to verse 1, he began to teach again by the sea. And after a long day of teaching, they are still there by a sea. He's gotten in a boat, pushed out because of the crowd. And rather than coming back to that 
bank that shore, Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. The central theme of the kingdom of God is Christ, the king himself. And this story of Jesus calming the storms and stilling the sea is a very familiar story. It's a wonderful story. But it's not a story about how high the waves got, and we'll talk about that, or how low they went, or how hard the wind was blowing, or how fearful the disciples were. All of those things are a reality, but it all culminates into one primary thing. It is a story about the king. It's a story about Christ from beginning to end. On that day when evening came, verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now, this is a crucial point for us to grasp before we get into the more exciting portion of this passage. We should note that it is Jesus who initiates this venture across the lake. It wasn't a harebrained idea from one of the disciples. Jesus himself said, let's go to the other side. It would have been about a six or eight mile journey, depending on exactly where they crossed the Sea of Galilee. But they were prepared to do this as the day came to an end. We might also, while we're thinking about Jesus initiating this trip, this famous trip across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus also ordered the weather. We read that in Psalm 107.25. He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. Surely we aren't willing to give anyone else or anything else credit for the storms on the sea that day. Either God is in control of the weather or he is not. Jesus being God not only initiates this famous venture across the Sea of Galilee, he ordered the weather. He is in complete control of the storms of our lives. Complete control. It's easy for us to give the nod that he's in control when there are no storms in life. But Mark makes it abundantly clear here that Christ is in complete control of even the storms, we might even say, especially the storms of our lives. He initiates the trip, he orders the weather, and he has a purpose for bringing about the events that happened this evening that's recorded here in Mark chapter 4. And the point is this. Jesus does not merely lead us into the trials, right? Jesus didn't jump off on the shore and tell them to go to the other side and order the storms to meet them on the way there. He's right in the boat with them. He's not only leading us as his people into trials and difficulties, but he's leading us and going along with us through those trials. I've split the passage up into three points, as you might imagine, just to make it easy to walk through. The scene, the scenario, and the Savior. Verses 35 through 37 is, we'll lay the groundwork and look at the scene and then face the scenario in 38 through 40. And then the whole point of the passage, the Savior, in verse 41. 
Verses 35 through 37. Let's look at them again. On that day when evening came, Jesus said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took Jesus along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Now, this is, this is no small storm that the disciples are facing, right? It, it's Jesus and his disciples. There are other boats around. There are other followers, other disciples, but these specific disciples who have been called by Jesus are on the boat with him. And we know from the previous chapters that at least four folks on the boat with Jesus were professional fishermen. They grew up on this sea. They've been through storms before. They've sailed stormy seas before. Since they were children, probably. We know for sure James and John's father was in the fishing business. Now, the Sea of Galilee, it's it's worth noting that it's not just another lake out there somewhere. The surface of the Sea of Galilee is over 600 feet below sea level. And the sea itself is surrounded by mountains. And there are great rifts or valleys feeding down into the sea. And you can imagine it and picture it. And so the wind gets started coming down into the valleys. And then it all hits and culminates there on the sea. And massive storms erupt as a result. This happens not just there on the Sea of Galilee, but this, the Sea of Galilee is part of a great rift. It's called the Great Rift Valley that stretches from there some 4,000 plus miles down into Africa. And some of you may have been in the Great Rift Valley before. I've been in the Great Rift Valley. I've actually been in a lake that was Lake Babogaya that, was, that is a former volcano crater. Actually, it still is a volcano crater, not active, obviously. And happened to be in a canoe with a friend of mine as the sun was going down and the wind was coming up. And I rem- I'm being in the front of the canoe, I remember turning around and looking at my friend Fakadu, is his name. And uh, I-, I thought I was afraid, but the look on his face made it clear I was doing okay. <laughs> at least I was pretending better than he was. All that to say, the Sea of Galilee was prone to storms. Not just prone, but notorious for its storms. But this storm is unlike any storm previously. Why? The servants of Christ, those that are closest to him, those that we might say that he cares the most about, his friends, none of them are exempt from life's storms. None of us. When we face storms in life, it's not because we are so far out on the peripheral in God's family that we are susceptible to them. Actually, based on this text, we see that the closer we are to him, the more susceptible we are to these storms. That's what happens here. Those that are closest to him, 
These disciples were following Jesus with their lives. They had left everything to follow him. They loved him. They were being obedient, seeking to be obedient to his commands and his demands. They were spending day after day with this man. And yet even they are not spared the danger and trouble of the sea. Could Jesus have not ordered a calm sailing experience that evening? Absolutely. But that would not have accomplished his goal and his plans for his people. He initiated the trip and he ordered the weather because he cared about his disciples. He is in complete control of every storm of our life as well. Which we can agree with and nod at and we understand it. But still, when we face difficulties, do we not respond with shock? and sometimes disgust, and oftentimes confusion. Trusting in Christ does not guarantee that our journey to heaven will be smooth and easy. Jesus never promised that. Free pardon from sin, that he promised. Full forgiveness, that's promised. Grace along the way, that's promised. Glory in the end, that's promised, but not gentle winds and smooth seas. In fact, Peter, who would have been on the boat here, who is actually, if you remember back to the beginning of Mark, Peter is probably the eyewitness telling this story to Mark as he's recording it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Peter learned good storm theology. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Surely when Peter writes that, he's thinking, don't be surprised like we were that night on the sea, which comes upon you for your testing. He, He had learned why at this point, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Peter learned well and, and writes as a result to other believers some three decades later. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you. Don't be surprised when the waters of life are stormy. Don't be surprised when the wind blows harder than you anticipate. The storms of life are what God uses to wean us from our infatuation with the world. From our infatuation with ourselves. The the difficulties that we face as Christians, they reveal our weaknesses. They are meant to do that. They expose the need that we have of him in order that we might grasp hold of him more tightly, more often. The troubles that we face in this life purify our affections for Christ and make us long for heaven. That's what Jesus was accomplishing in these disciples on the Sea of Galilee here at the end of Mark chapter 4. And that's what's happening in every one of us when we face trials and difficulties. Grab a hymnal and open to hymn number 98. 
You may have noticed several of the songs that we've sung already today mentioned facing sorrow and difficulty and the storms of life. Hymn writers for ages have been writing about this. John Newton, who wrote this hymn, was no stranger to the sea, he himself being a slave trader before he was converted, most well known for writing Amazing Grace. But he, had, he too had recognized that growing required difficulty. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray. God taught me to pray like this, he says. And he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped, when I prayed that way, I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd grant my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest.'" didn't quite happen that way for Newton. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul on every part. Here he's acknowledging, not only did Jesus initiate this trip, but Jesus ordered the weather and the storms. Verse 5, yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my pride, The original says, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? Newton writes. I trembly cried, wilt thou pursue thy soul to death? We can hear the disciples on the boat saying the same thing. Don't you care about us? We're dying. Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and sin to set thee free. Why is life difficult? Because we need to be set free from sin and self to break the schemes, thy schemes of worldly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. There arose a fierce gale of wind. Why? The waves were breaking over the boat. Why? So much that the boat was already filling up. Why? Because Jesus loved them. Because he cared about them. When Matthew writes about this story, the way he describes the storm, he uses the word seismic as if there's a sea quake. The the sea is moving so much, it's like an earthquake. There may have been an earthquake that day. And again, to get the picture of the size of the storms that can happen, it's hard for us to imagine a storm. We've been on lakes and rivers, and it can be choppy. In, In 1992... Waves were recorded on the Sea of Galilee during a storm with 10 feet surges. 10 feet waves coming in and landing on the shore. That's massive. That is a massive storm. And if you're in a fishing boat that holds 12 to 15 people, you can imagine the degree of urgency that the disciples must have felt. But it was sudden. There arose, seemingly out of nowhere. But isn't that exactly how life happens? I mean, how many of us have gotten a memo that warned us that difficulty is just ahead or just around the corner? Be ready. Next week, you're going to face a tragedy. Zero of us. Life happens. 
Tragedy comes seemingly out of nowhere. Now we can trust that God, who is with us, has initiated our lives and has ordered the weather, but he doesn't let us know when it's going to happen. It is sudden. Christians since the beginning of time have been facing trials and learning the benefit of them. We see that in John Newton's hymn that we just looked at. You may be familiar also with a very famous quote from Charles Spurgeon. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. We learn over time to appreciate those things that God orchestrates in our lives that make us trust him more, that help us recognize that he is the sure rock of our salvation. Again, a hymn that I, you can't turn to, but some of you will be familiar with it. Praise you in this storm by casting crowns. Listen to the words. It, it encaptures the idea so well. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again, they write, I say amen, and it's still raining. As the thunder rolls... I barely hear your whisper through the rain. I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You've never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. And I will lift my hands. And in this line, summarizes it all so well. For you are who you are no matter where I am, no matter how high the waves, no matter how strong the wind, no matter the storm, he is the unchanging God and he is for us. You are who you are, no matter where I am, I will praise you in this storm. That lets us know what the disciples ought to have been doing that day and how they should have responded. And hopefully it teaches us and encourages us with regard to how we ought to respond. When we find this scene being a reality in our lives, when out of nowhere the wind is blowing and the waves are crashing and we are sinking, may God help us to remember that he is unchanged. He is with us and he loves us and he will not ever forsake us. And it doesn't matter what it might look like or feel like or seem like, as we'll see in the next point, the scenario. Actually, up until verse 37, nothing looks all that bad, right? Jesus is in the boat. The problem is Jesus is asleep in the boat. Let's read 38, 39, and 40 again. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus is asleep. Not only is he asleep, he's using a cushion. He's curled up with a pillow. Why would Jesus 
be using a cushion to sleep. Any ideas? Because it's more comfortable. <laughs> right? Jesus is not an ascetic who refuses all creature comforts. He's fully human, truly human. And following a long day of ministry, a long day of teaching and healing, he's tired. You know what tired humans do? They sleep. So Jesus is sleeping. He is both exhausted from ministry, but he's also fully trusting of his Father. He's not wringing his hands with regard to the situation, but he trusts in his Father. This is actually the only mention of Jesus ever sleeping in the New Testament. And it's interesting, at minimum, that it's during a storm in the midst of a boat that's rocking around. Now, I say he's human, and that ought to be emphasized. He's also God. We should remember that he was trusting in his Father, who keeps you and will not slumber. He keeps Israel. He will neither slumber nor sleep, Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. He could sleep because God doesn't. In your life, when anxiety is high and stress is massive and there's a lot to do, you can sleep because God doesn't. You can sleep on a pillow because Jesus did. You can rest well. The three questions that are posed here in the passage are worth considering. The first one is here in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do not care that we are perishing. The next question is posed by Jesus in verse 40. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the final one, the disciples are asking themselves, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But the first question, do you not care? Mind-boggling, right? Disciples to Jesus. If they had only seen what they had witnessed that day, it's an amazing question. But they had seen more than that. Do you not care that we're perishing? The accusation. Waking Jesus is understandable in this situation. It's expected. They're facing an imminent death as far as they know. So waking him up is not the problem. But the accusation of Jesus not caring is beyond absurd. I mean, imagine what the answer could have legitimately been when they rustled Jesus from his sleep. He had given up eternal glory because he cared for them. Do you not care that we're perishing? He had given up being at the right hand of the Father because he cared for them. Do you not care that we're perishing? He had taken on humanity because he cared for them. Do you not care that we're perishing? He had left the praises of angels because he cared for them. Do you not care that we're perishing? He was despised and rejected by men because he cared for them. And yet they asked, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? You're sleeping, so you must not care. Now, the irony should not be lost on us that in Gethsemane, three of these disciples complaining about Jesus sleeping would find themselves sleeping on the eve of Jesus' death. I mentioned that waking Jesus was not the problem. I actually think they should have woke him up earlier instead of relying on all their own strength before calling on him. Which is what we are prone to do. Try to get all the water out of the boat, get the sails down, do everything we can. Last resort, Okay, we'll trust Jesus. That's where they should have started. Trusting in him with all their heart, not leaning in their own understanding, in all their ways acknowledging him in order that he would make the path straight. And that's what we ought to do, to trust in him first. When it's just a light breeze and there's the first sign of a white cap, why not then cry out, oh God, prove yourself faithful yet again? rather than leaning on our own understanding and trusting in ourselves. Do you not care? Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind and the sea. Hush to the wind. Be still to the waves. Hush, be still. I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't just tell the wind to stop and allow the sea to die down. It would happen in time, right? Every storm has come to a stop. And the waves would have stopped after some time. But Jesus commands an immediate cease. It's almost like he he presses down and it becomes calm like a sea of glass proving that the voice of one who created the wind and who created the waves can also calm them. I say he created them again from Psalm 107. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. Listen, you can picture this. You can almost feel it. The waves, they rose up to the heavens, verse 26. They went down to the depths. You can ride the boat with them. If you get seasick, you probably feel it happening as you read it. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered around like a drunken man on the boat. They were at their wits end. Then, verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Silence and stillness resulted from Jesus' words, hush, be still. Again, relying on wonderful hymns, be still my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past, thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. The wind and the waves have not forgotten that night on the sea. 
May God help us to not forget as his disciples, as his followers. And he asked them a question. Why are you afraid? He rebukes the wind, he rebukes the sea, he gently rebukes the disciples. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, the wind and the waves were not the only thing creating chaos or out of order, experiencing chaos. They, the disciples, are fearful. Literally, the word there is cowardly. Why are you acting like cowards? Jesus says. He doesn't say it harshly. He's being very patient with his disciples here. He makes no threat of casting them off, throwing them into the stormy sea. He gives no evidence of being disgusted with their fearfulness. Rather, he bears with them, raising them up, as it were, from their fear, restoring their faith. Again, that's the reason that he initiated this trip. That's the reason that he ordered this storm was to help them over their fears and restore and instill faith in them. Jesus intends to calm their fears the same way that he calmed the wind and the waves. By speaking to them. We could quite often use a dose of this kind of patience with others that we see Jesus displaying with his disciples. Some of us could use a dose of this kind of patience with ourselves. Rather than when we recognize that there's chaos within or without, rather than responding, do you not care? But responding with calling out to God, responding in faith. There's an interesting reality here between faith and fear here in the passage. Our fearfulness is directly related to our lack of faith. Or we could say it this way, faithlessness results in being fearful. When we believe, when we trust, we are less likely to fall into cowardly fearfulness and being unnecessarily afraid. When we have faith, when we trust him, we lean on him rather than our own understanding. Some of you will be familiar with the story of Horatio Spafford in 1871, so a couple years ago. Uh, he, He had one son and four daughters. His only son died of pneumonia at the age of four. In the same calendar year, there was a great fire in Chicago, known as the Great Chicago Fire, destroyed a large portion of his business. That's where he was from and he lived. He had worked all of his life to build that and it burned and he lost a lot of that. Two years later, in the mid-1873, 74, he sent his wife and daughters on a trip to Europe. He was planning to join them later. Uh, This was for a summer holiday. On the fourth day of the voyage across to Europe, the ship collided with a barge. His four daughters all died at sea, along with most of the other passengers. His wife survived. She was found clinging to a board. She was rescued. She sent a telegram to her husband, which read simply, Saved alone, what shall I do? He got on a ship, went to Europe to be with his wife. 
On his way, four days into the voyage, the captain of the ship called to him and told him that they were passing over the exact place where the previous crash had happened, where his daughters had perished. And it was there that he pulled out a pen and began writing, when peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. But he didn't just stop there with the reality of of the grief and the pain and the sorrow. But he continued to write, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And what was true for Spafford as he writes this hymn is true as we work through this passage and see the focus is not just on the stormy seas being settled. It's not just on the disciples responding wrongly and learning to have faith rather than fear. But the culminating question, again, not just in this story, but in the entirety of this passage and the great theme of the kingdom of God as a whole is the third question in the passage in verse 41, who then is this? that even the wind and sea obey him. The third point, who is this? The Savior. The reality for these disciples, the reality for Horatio Spafford, for John Newton, others that we have considered this morning, the reality for every one of us who are in Christ is that greater is he that is for us than those who are against us. Not just those people, but those anythings The world of sin is against us. Satan is against us. And greater is God in the person of Jesus Christ than any of those things. The wind and the waves were not the major issue for these disciples. Look at verse 41. They became very much afraid. Literally, they were experiencing mega megaphobia in the original language. Right? The wind and wave, the wind has stopped, the waves have ceased. And real fear has taken over. The wind and the waves were not the major issue, but the presence of the King, Christ. And our primary issues are not the situations that we find ourselves in either. But the primary situation that we must deal with is, who is this man? Who is this King? Who is this Christ? They were very much afraid, became very much afraid, Mark writes. Again, I mean, imagine Peter sitting with him saying, and then like Jesus said, hush, be still, and it did. (laughs) And we're amazed, not just a little bit amazed, we actually were more afraid then than we were before. What's going to happen next? You see, that they were mistranslating what's happening. If they're more afraid now, they're misunderstanding who he is. He's for them. You want that guy in your corner. You want to be worshiping him. We know they weren't thinking rightly about him, or they would have woken him up and cried out to him earlier rather than accusing him of not caring. Everything around them was made peaceful and perfect, and yet now they are massively more fearful. Wonderful reminder 
for us that our biggest problem is not the turmoil that's circling our lives. The biggest issue in our life is what we think about this man. When fears are swirling around, when anxieties are surging within, we are failing to fear him. Failing to fear him who loves us with an everlasting love. Failing to fear him who will never leave us or forsake us. Failing to fear him who cares for us. Failing to fear him who came to save us. Failing to fear him who suffered for us. Failing to fear him who bled and died for us. Failing to fear him who was raised again for us who is seated at God's right hand for us, who intercedes for us, who is sustaining us, and who will return for us. The disciples asked the exact right question at this point. Who then is this man? If they had begun the journey with this level of faith-producing fear, they would not have responded so wrongly when the storm began. A greater fear of Christ is the solution. It is our solution to settling stormy seas. Which we finally got to the title of the sermon, Settling Stormy Seas. If the seas, if the stormy seas of our lives are going to be settled, if the wind's going to stop and the water's going to be still, It will require a proper fear of God in Christ. Not exclaiming that Christ doesn't care, but trusting that Christ cares and believing that not only does he care, but he can calm the stormy seas of life. Now, what are the storms of life? Almost everything. Loss of friends. Most storms can be measured by loss. We could lose friends based on circumstance or location. We could lose loved ones for sickness or death. We could lose jobs or careers or hope. The disciples here lost their ability to guide the ship appropriately. They were quickly losing hope and confidence At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the storm is that we are facing. Because no matter the storm, Christ controls it. He controls when it begins, and he controls when it ends. Back up to verse 36. Leaving the crowd, after Jesus says, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd, they took Jesus along with them in the boat, just as he was, And other boats were with him. Consider how these other boats benefited from being close to Jesus and his people. We have no idea how they were responding to the storm. I'll bet they were at least as frightened as the disciples. But I think it's helpful to take note of what is said about them. You see all that's said about these other boats? Right, nothing. Nothing at all. 
Oh, that we would worry less about all the other boats and how they're handling the storms out there. And that we would be enamored and content with the Savior being in our boat. And that we would trust him fully and completely. In closing, I want to just draw our minds to a couple pictures from Scripture. Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 17, the uproar, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. This small passage here in Mark is not the only time. It's one of many times in Scripture where sin and chaos and trial and difficulty is pictured by rumbling waters, mighty waters, the tossing of the sea, Isaiah 57, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The rumbling of mighty waters, that's the world in which we live, the tossing of the sea that's tossing up refuse and mud, no peace, That is the world in which we live, but it's not where we will live forever. Listen to this picture from Revelation 4. A throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance, and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal in the center and around the throne. And the Apostle John records the ceaseless worship that he witnessed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created." Though we live in a day when there is a rumbling of mighty waters and the tossing of the sea, we serve the risen Christ who can say, hush, be still. And we have the glorious promise that we will worship him around that throne where there is like a sea of glass, reminding us and promising us that no matter how difficult life was, no matter what the storms of life were, he is king and is Christ, and is over all, and he is for us, and not against us. May God help us to be increasingly enamored, intrigued, satisfied, and content with this man. Never accusing, do you not care, but always asking, who then is this? Let's pray. Our God, we thank you again for your word, and we do pray that by your spirit you would continue to drive home the truth as it is in Jesus, that we might be increasingly convinced and convicted, 
that Christ is our king, that he is our sure and steady anchor. God, we thank you that you have proven so faithful thus far. But God, we confess, though we believe, we ask, won't you help our unbelief? Remove our fear and grant us greater measures of faith. Aid us, God, that we wouldn't be faithless and fearful, but make us a people that are confident in you, our steadfast surety, our rock of ages. Hear us and help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.